6. And the chorus is based on verse 4, but I want to read verses 1 through 9. This is the inerrant word of God written for our edification. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And all God's people said, Amen. Father God, we delight in your word. We pray that as we focus on who you are this morning, that our hearts would be uh, caught up uh, with uh, the glory of your attributes, the glory of your being. And Father, we would be taught to worship you a better. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to clearly articulate and clearly bring back to mind the things uh, that uh, you have laid on my heart that we have prepared here and enable each one of us to receive this word with the illumination of your Holy Spirit and the glory in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you might wonder how an abstract doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity could be of any practical uh, value in our lives, but I hope before we get very far into this sermon, uh, that thought will be totally banished from your life. Uh, it's true that this is a difficult doctrine to understand and uh, wrap our heads around, but as some of the foundations of the Trinity are laid out, especially in the coming weeks, I think you're going to see that there are incredibly wonderful dividends that it will pay in your life. Now, this is a doctrine, unfortunately, that has uh, uh, been compromised in many circles, in evangelical uh, church of America especially, but in other countries as well. And we'll be looking at that. In a later sermon we're going to be seeing, you cannot even pray rightly if you do not understand the inter-Trinitarian relationships. Um, we are taught in the scripture over and over again to pray to the Father in the name of the Son and through His mediation and by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, many times people invert that order and they teach their children, for example, to, uh, to pray, Dear Jesus, and that's the only person of the Trinity that they ever pray to. Now, in a, maybe a couple of weeks, we're going to be seeing the ramifications, that the negative ramifications that can happen if that is perpetuated over a period of time. Many times worship is turned upside down because Scripture commands us to have Trinitarian uh, worship. In about, I'm not sure, two, three, four weeks, I haven't prepared the sermons yet, but uh, we're going to be seeing that not all the charismatic movement, but many in the char charismatic movement have inverted the doctrine of the Trinity in their practical uh, church work and, and life. 
and we'll be seeing why that is true. Radical feminism has insisted that the Son does not submit to the Father and that the Spirit does not submit to the Son. And uh, you will uh, we'll be seeing why that's absolutely essential to their doctrine. If they're going to maintain their radical egalitarianism, they have to insist on that. On the other hand, uh, one of the things that we're going to be seeing is that the Father's relationship of authority over the Son and the Son's uh, position of authority over the Spirit models to us who are in authority how we need to be exercising our authority. And many people uh, fail to do uh, that in a, in a biblical manner. And I want to just give you a sneak preview of where we are going to be going. You know, in human relationships, we have a tendency to want to be first, to get the glory, you know, to be the... Uh, uh, ones who are in the place of honor and we do that whether we're in authority or whether we're under authority even the disciples argued amongst themselves as to who was the greatest and Christ interestingly he did, that brings another number of things to correct them but one of the things that he brings to correct their ideas is showing how the members of the Trinity defer to one another for example in John 16 uh, verses 13 through 14 it speaks of the son's total authority over the spirit he says however when he the spirit of truth has come he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come he will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you all things that the father has are mine that's pretty comprehensive isn't it all things that the father has are mine Therefore I said that he, and that's a reference to the Spirit, takes of mine and will declare it to you. Now in that passage we see that the Son is under the Father's authority and that the Spirit is under the Son's authority, but each of the persons of the Trinity defer to one another. Uh, everything that was under the Father's authority he gives to the Son. Everything that's under the Son's authority he gives to the Spirit. And so the, Spirit, the Son honors the Spirit and the Spirit honors the Son. In fact, in our Sermon on the Spirit, whenever it's going to be, two, three weeks, uh, we're going to be seeing that absolutely everything that the Spirit does, He does in a way that highlights the Son and pushes forward the Son and glorifies the Son. And we're going to be seeing in some church circles, that is completely in inverted. John Calvin spoke of the Spirit as being the shy member of the Trinity. And uh, yet in many circles, the Holy Spirit is emphasized and elevated and highlighted in a way to almost diminish or abstract the other two. And it's the complete opposite of the way the Spirit treats himself. Um, when we look at the Son, we don't see the Son saying, hey, I'm the greatest. The Father honors me and the Spirit honors me. I think I will honor me. No, he doesn't say that. In John 8, 54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Instead, he glorifies the Father. In John 8, 28 through 29, Jesus says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And in the next verse, he says, For I always do those things that please him, that is, please the Father. And so the Spirit pleases the Son, and the Son pleases the Father. In John 5.30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. Similar words to what the Spirit does with the Son, right? But he says, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, you might think <coughs> that because the Spirit 
um, does nothing except for what the Son permits, and since the Son does nothing except for what the Father permits, that the Father might think, hey, I'm the greatest. And yet in the Gospel, you see the Father bestowing everything in the Son, and he doesn't even talk in the Gospels except for two times. The only two times that the Father speaks from heaven, what is he doing? He is highlighting his Son. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Listen to my Son. You see how they all defer to one another. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but it demonstrates that we misuse our authority if we use our authority to put down and to demean and to belittle our wives or our children or any other people who are under our authority. True authority ministers to and it praises and it glorifies and it honors those who are under our authority. They don't put themselves into the spotlight. In fact, true leadership, good leadership, is going to brush off the credit that people give to them to the people who have helped them, constantly bringing the credit. You know, with the wife, I could not do this apart from my wife. I'm so thankful to my wife, or I'm thankful to my children and the things that they have uh, brought into this, into this family. And then, true submission is not bothered in the least by the fact that it is totally under the authority of another person and cannot do anything without the permission of another person. Just think of the way the Spirit works. Um, it, he glories in and delights in respecting and pushing forward and honoring the Son. It's a glory to him, and it should be a glory to those who are under authority. It does not mean that um, the, the Spirit is in any way uh, weaker. The Spirit has equal power and equal glory to all of the other members of the Trinity. Now, when you realize that the Spirit did and does nothing without the Son's permission, then it becomes especially significant in the Gospels when you see that the Son did nothing apart from the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit. He was even led by the Spirit, was he not? And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now, but I think you can see that the inter-Trinitarian relationships have profound ramifications for our social relationships. And radical feminism has turned both honor and deference and authority upside down and destroyed what God wants to bless, and chauvinism has also done that. And so if you do not understand the Trinity, you do not understand Christianity. You do not worship rightly, because our worship is to be Trinitarian. The doctrine of the Trinity impacts our view of culture, of service, of love, of community, and many other things. And so if we do not understand this doctrine, uh, we're not even going to be able to um, be the kind of Christians God calls us to be. And we need to be ready to oppose the false doctrine that has crept into the church of Jesus Christ. And so I've started with the why. Why should we even bother studying the Trinity? And there's a lot more to the why that I've not covered but I want you to see there's a goal, there's a reason, there's a purpose. This is a, a very valuable, a very practical doctrine. And now what I want to do is I want to get into the what. What is the Trinity? And we're going to start with a, a definition. We're going to lay the groundwork today. And then hopefully we're going to draw out some of the implications of the Trinity in the, in the next Sundays. There's at least three statements that need to be made for the Trinity. Now, there's more things we're going to be looking at in later Sundays, but this is the minimum. You have to have all three of these statements in place to have the orthodox statement of the Trinity that has been held by the church all the way down through history. First, there is only one true God. 
and that one true God is perfectly unified of one essence. There's only one true God. Second, this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Third, these three persons are not parts of God. In other words, you know, don't think of God this way, that the Father is a third of God, and the Spirit's another third, and the, whole, uh, and, and the Son is another third of God. No, each person is fully God. That's very, very important to understand. Each person is fully God. Now, another way to word this is that these three persons are co-eternal, co-equal, co-inherent, and of the same substance or essence, even though they are distinct persons. Now, <laughs> we're going to be seeing how illustrations of the Trinity violate uh, this last principle uh, many, many times. And maybe you've used some of these illustrations uh, to try to teach your kids, you know, what the Trinity is like. And I just want to put a little bit of a caution here. For example, some people use the, the illustration of H2O. It's in three states, ice, water, and steam, and yet it's all H2O, right? And uh, even though that can illustrate certain facets of the Trinity, the danger is that it illustrates modalism much better than it illustrates the Trinity. In fact, the heretical modalists use that illustration all the time. See, the modalists say that um, uh, there is only one person in the Godhead. And this one person is manifested, he puts on different face masks, as it were, but he's manifested in different ways. In the Old Testament, he was Father. In the time of Christ, he was Son. From Acts chapter 2 and on, he, he is manifested as the Holy Spirit. But these Three persons cannot exist at the same time, just like water, ice, and steam cannot exist at the same time. They're one or the other, you know? And so they say, yeah, perfect illustration of what the Trinity is all about is modalism, they say. No, that's not the Trinity. And so we need to have caution on what kinds of illustrations we use. Some people use the illustration of an egg, but that's like, you know, the shell, the white, and the yolk. But that's just part of the egg is the white. Part of the egg is the shell. Only part of the egg is the, is the yolk. Did I cover all three? <laughs> and so there, there's, there's problems. You can sort of use it as certain illustrations, but actually I think it's better if you just teach your kids the abstract truth. And kids can pick up abstract truth. I've seen three-year-olds give articulate incredible definitions of the Trinity that are not memorized. They obviously understand it. And Western civilization was transformed by the abstract knowledge of the Trinity and other abstract doctrines. Don't demean that. Now, there are a couple of illustrations that are not as problematic. Some people use the illustration one times one times one is one. I, I still think there's a few problems with that. The best illustration I have seen is uh, of a circle that's drawn with a blue pen on the board. And the circle represents God, but blue represents the Father. And then you trace right over top of that line with a red pen. That represents the sun. And then you trace right over that line with a, I don't know, another color, yellow or green. And that represents the Holy Spirit. And so all three are fully God, and yet there are distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you need an illustration, that's probably one of the best ones that, that you could give. Now let's look at each one of these three points. If you would put up the next um, uh, overhead there. First of all, there is only one true God. Now, that is absolutely essential to the Trinity. Trinity means three in one, uh, <coughs> or triunity. And so Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We do not believe in three gods. That is a heresy. We believe in monotheism. Mono 
meaning one, and theism, meaning um, belief in God. And so it's the belief in one God. Now, believe it or not, that's very surprising to some Christians um, that uh, were monotheistic. They'll, they'll listen to a Mormon definition of God, and they'll say, boy, that sounds very similar to ours, especially nowadays. They're trying to sound more and more evangelical, even though they've really not changed their theology. And I want you to listen to this definition of God by McConkie, who is a Mormon apostle, and I think you'll instantly recognize the error. But he says this, there are three gods, and I should parenthetically say he believes in billions of gods, but there's three gods especially that they deal with, and so they're trying to sound a little bit more Christian. So he says there are three gods, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, though separate in personality, are united in one purpose, in plan, and in all the attributes of perfection. Now, when they're talking with evangelicals, they may not even mention the three gods. And they'll say, you know, we believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in one plan and purpose, and they're united in all of the perfections of their attributes. Doesn't that just sound like evangelicalism? And we have to say, no, they not only believe in three gods, they believe in billions of gods and will eventually become gods. It's an evolution. It's a polytheistic religion. It is not Christianity. It is a polytheistic uh, religion, and you cannot be a Christian if you hold to the doctrine that there are three gods or there are more than three gods. Now, look at our text that we read, um, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, and any time you see Lord in all capital letters like that in the New King James, it's representing Yahweh. And so it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Now, let me quickly brush through a whole pile of references that show monotheism. Deuteronomy 32, 39. God says, there is no God besides me. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? There is no God besides me. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Monotheism. Now, what I also want to point out is the New Testament is just as monotheistic as the Old Testament is. For example, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and affirms the truth of that. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Mark 12, verse 29. In verse 32, he says, you know, actually, this was the other guy, and Jesus agrees with him. He says, there is one God, and there is no other but he. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is one God. Galatians 3, 20, God is one. Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord. Next verse, one God. 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. James 2, 19, you believe that there is one God? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. So, Monotheism all, all through the New Testament. There's many other New Testament references. I've quoted more of those because there's been a tendency amongst some Christians to say, okay, the Old Testament was monotheistic. The New Testament is Trinitarian, as if the two were different. But it is not. From Genesis through Revelation, we will be seeing that it is a trinity that is presented before our eyes. We're going to be seeing the practical ramifications of this doctrine that God is one. But for now... Just realize Mormonism is not even remotely Christian. It is polytheistic, heretical religion that believes in many gods. You know, it grieved me when I saw uh, a member of our church at the last church that we were at. They were only members for about two weeks. 
<laughs> but they, they joined the Mormon church, and we, we talked to them and counseled them. This is, this is, you know, they don't hold to the Trinity. They were just thinking, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's just like any other evangelical church, and they eventually had to come under discipline. But we cannot be too careful about this doctrine. Very, very important doctrine. Now let's go on to the second part of the definition. second part of the definition says that this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now another way of saying this is that the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Spirit is God. Another way of saying it is that the Father is Yahweh, the Spirit is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh. Yahweh and Jehovah, those are just two different ways of pronouncing the, the same uh, thing. But there is one name, there's one God, and yet there are three persons in that Godhead. Now that may remind you of our baptismal formula. I baptize you in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's taken from Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now notice there's only one name, right? Only one name. Why? Because there's only one Yahweh. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord is one and his name one. Okay, There's only one Yahweh. In the New Testament it says, There are not gods many but one God. There are not lords many but one Lord. Okay, So there's uh, the Lord is one and his name one. Now, here's the way some people interpret that. They interpret the name of God being the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, there's many very good theologians that interpret it that way. But if that was the name, then you would not have in the Greek the words and of thee in front of Son and of the Spirit. What's going on here is that the Son is not the name. Rather, there is a name that belongs to the Son. It's of the Son. The Spirit is not a name, but there is a name that is of the Spirit. It belongs to the Spirit, and the same is true of the Father. Okay? Um, one God, three persons, one name. Remember that Zechariah verse, the Lord is one and his name one. So there's one name, but three persons that have that name. So what are the implications? 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6 teaches that the Father is God, fully God. Paul says, for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. Did you get that? He is saying that there is one God the Father through whom this whole universe came into existence. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all this universe came into existence. He's identifying the two as being creator of this world. There's only one God, and yet Jesus is called God as well. There's only one Lord, and yet the Father is called Lord as well. And so he's distinguishing between Father and Son, and yet saying that they are of one essence now almost everybody that's in that claims to be a christian believes that the father is god so i'm not going to belabor that one but scripture says that the son is god as well john 1 verse 1 this is a verse uh, that you guys really need to have in your repertoire when you're talking with people john 1 1 and hebrews chapter 1 the whole chapter of hebrews 1 is proving that jesus is jehovah but John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and later on he defines that Word as the pre-incarnate Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word 
was God. So if he's with God, he's objective to him. He can have fellowship with him. But if he is God, there is some way in which, in essence, they are the same, right? And so it says, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with, all, with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, if everything that was made in this whole wide universe was made by the pre-incarnate Jesus, that means he wasn't made. The Son of God wasn't made. As to his humanity, his humanity was made. But the Son of God was not made, right? That's the logical implication from that. And so John is saying exactly the same thing that the Father said, that there is a distinction between Son and Father, and yet they are one in essence. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And thus, when Jesus was worshipped by humans and was called God by humans, he didn't stop them like the apostles did and like angels did. Oh, don't worship me. That's blasphemy. Now, if he was an angel, if he was a man, or if he was some other created being, he would have to stop them from worshiping him. But he didn't. He welcomed their worship. He welcomed their testimonies that he was God. For example, when Doubting Thomas finally calls Jesus, my Lord and my God, and falls on his knees before him, Jesus doesn't, you know, say, stop it, stop it, don't do that. No, he welcomes it. In fact, he says that this is true faith. That's what Jesus says. John 20, verse 28, Jesus goes on. Oh, yeah, we already dealt with it. John 8, verse 58, Jesus claims to be the I am who existed before Abraham and who revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Now, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the immediate reaction of the Jews is to pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy and claiming to be God. Why? Because they know that the name I am, it doesn't make, it, it, just as a verb, doesn't make any good grammar in the Greek. But as a name, it's perfect. And so they recognize he is calling himself the I am. The, the, in the Hebrew, I am is the root of the noun uh, 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 the same root as the noun Yahweh, okay? So I am and Yahweh are related. He's calling himself Jehovah. In John 5, Jesus says that just as the Father has life in himself and he raises the dead, he is given to the Son to have life in himself and to raise whoever he will. That's verse 21. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son, verse 22. And the next verse says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is why Colossians 2, verse 9 can say, For in him, that's in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Titus 2, 13, Jesus is called our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9, 6, he's called mighty God. Matthew 1, 23, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 1. This is a chapter that you should be very, very familiar with. It's an incredible description of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to highlight uh, a few verses for you here. What he does is he quotes passages from the Old Testament that were addressed to Yahweh God and applies them to Jesus. Verse 8, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's calling Jesus God there. And yet to this God, Jesus, who rules on the throne, he says, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. That's God anointing God, right? 
Verse 10 applies Psalm 102 to Jesus, saying, You, Lord, and the word, by the way, from Psalm 102 is Yahweh. That's why it's all capital letters in the King James here. So it's you, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not uh, fail. And so in that verse, the Son is called Yahweh. He is said to be the creator of all things. He is said to be eternal. He is said to be immutable, which means he is unchangeable, right? Those are divine attributes. Verse 6 says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. God commands the angels to worship Jesus. And so Hebrews 1, there's other verses in there where he quotes from the Old Testament, applies Yahweh passages to Jesus. It's an incredible verse. You need to have that verse in your itinerary when you're talking with people who uh, doubt or deny the itinerary or when you're training your kids. You know, it's never too young to train your children about the Trinity. Start, you know, when they're one, two, three years old. Uh, they're not going to understand a whole lot, but you can begin teaching them the doctrines of the Trinity. They need to know who their God is. Now, the Spirit is also called God. He's called the Spirit of God 26 times, the Spirit of the Lord 28 times. He's called the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of your Father. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says that those phrases that are written up there are the same thing as saying the Lord is the Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In Acts 5, 3 through 4, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so to lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. Now, I won't deal with that a whole lot because it's not real controversial. Even the cults who deny the Trinity, they admit that the Spirit is called God over and over again in the Scripture, but they say, well, it's called God in a sense because it's some power that's emanating from God, but it's an it. It's an impersonal power that emanates from God. And so what I want to just really quickly do is lay that aside. Jehovah's Witnesses deny that the Spirit is a person. Well, let's look at that. In the Scripture, it says that we can have fellowship with the Spirit. That's Philippians 2.1. You don't have fellowship with a telephone pole, right? You have fellowship with a person, right? And uh, there are many other things that the Spirit does that only a person can do. And I did not put the verses up there, but, man, you can just look in a concordance of your Holy Spirit, and you'll see that the Spirit speaks, and he teaches, and he sends people, and he guides, and he bears witness, and he forbids people from doing things. That's Acts uh, 16, verse 8. And he's insulted. Hebrews 10, verse 29, he's grieved. Ephesians 4, uh, verse 3, he has a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, he has a mind. Uh, Romans 8, verse 27. In other words, he's a person that we can relate to, that we can fellowship with, that we can worship, right? And uh, we're going to be say, showing in later sermon that there are enormous implications of understanding the personal dimensions of all three persons. So we've seen, first of all, there is only one true God, perfectly unified, one essence, only one God. Secondly, this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, these three persons are fully God and are equal in power and glory. They're fully God, equal in power and glory. Now, I've already quoted from John 5 to show the deity of Jesus, but let me read to you the, the conclusion that the Apostle John draws. He makes some commentary on that. John 5, 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now this is not just 
the Jews' interpretation. Their interpretation is right, but this is John's interpretation. He's saying, yes, Jesus is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the Son uh, of, of, the, uh, uh, of the Father, and so that is why they were going to try to kill him. Philippians 2, 6 speaks of Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, if he's in the very form of God, it can't be robbery to be equal with God, can it? You can't steal from yourself. You know, if you are equal, you can't steal from yourself. To claim to be equal is what he's basically uh, saying there. Okay, in John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. Now, here is the immediate response that the Jews have in the next verses. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world you are blaspheming, because I say I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Then they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now, there are so many aspects of equality with God in that passage. I won't belabor it, but I think you can see it. But I do want to counter some errors, and I'm not going to counter all of the errors that are on your sheet. I just put those down so I don't have to do that, right? Uh, it's going to be a long enough um, a sermon as it is. But there are some I think I really do need to address. And the first one is an error that is held to by Trinitarians. They believe that the Trinity is truth. They hold to it, but it's really not that important. And people can be Christians and not believe in the Trinity. And let's just welcome them in. Let's not worry about uh, this doctrine. That's quite a different attitude um, than the attitude that the church all through history has taken. All through history, if you denied the Trinity... You know, if you just were mistaken, they would educate you in it. But if you denied the Trinity and said, no, there is not uh, three persons who are one God, you would be excommunicated because you cannot be a Christian and not hold to these doctrines. But these Christians, these evangelicals say differently. Let me give you the best argument that they put forward just so that you can get a little bit of a feel of what they're thinking. They say, after all, there was no mention of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And people were saved back then were they not and if God didn't bother to reveal the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament surely it could not be a very important doctrine and we ought not to be making it such an essential doctrine of Christian fellowship today that sounds like a pretty strong argument doesn't it and uh, it was actually used by um, uh, an assistant pastor of one of the large evangelical churches in, in the city here today he's saying Give me a break, Phil. Are you saying that uh, the United Pentecostals can't be members of CellNet simply because they don't believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons in the Godhead? And I said, yes. T.D. Jakes is not a Christian. He is a heretic. And you want to embrace him? You want to invite these kinds of people in? No way. No way. They're outside of the church. Now, he thought that was ridiculous. He thought it was unloving. And that these modalists, United Pentecostals are modalists, that uh, they should be admitted. Now, there are others who, using exactly the same arguments, say, we worship the same God that the modern Jews do. 
And then President Bush, using exactly the same logic, says, we worship exactly the same God that the Muslims do. And you can see the logic that is behind it. Here is the logic that's behind it. We are monotheists. Judaism is a monotheistic religion. Islam is a monotheistic religion. Let's just forget all of this doctrinal arguing. Let's just get along and love one another. That's the logic that is behind this argumentation. And we cannot, we cannot fall into these politically correct traps. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to examine the question, is this truly only a New Testament doctrine? Um, you would think if it was so all-fired important, God would make it pretty clear in the Old Testament. Are there Old Testament passages that are just as clear as passages like Matthew 3? By the way, Matthew 3 is uh, one of many passages that you can use to disprove modalism. Matthew 3 is the baptism of Jesus, right? And so there is Jesus sitting. Let me explain first that modalists believe there's only one person, right? And he can't, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are that one person. They can't exist at the same time. And so in the Old Testament, he's Father, then he's Son, and then he's Holy Spirit. But what do you have in the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3? You've got Jesus standing there. You've got the Spirit coming in the form of the dove out of heaven and on his head. But there's still a voice in heaven that is saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so the father is speaking to the son, and the spirit is ministering to the son. There's three persons, and yet they're there all at the same time. Perfect passage to disprove modalism, right? Now, here's the question I have. Do we have such Trinitarian passages that are just as clear in the Old Testament that would have made the Jews there culpable, and Christ holds them culpable for not believing in the Trinity? Well, actually, I, it's for not believing that he was part of the Trinity. I believe that many of those ancient Jews did believe in the Trinity. We'll get to that in a little bit. But are there clear passages in the Old Testament that uh, show this? <coughs> there are some people who say, well, maybe. Maybe it's hidden. And maybe we can see it was New Testamentized, but no Old Testament saint could see it. And there are others who say, no, it's not even in the Old Testament. And then there are other scholars who say, no, there is no shadow of a doubt about the fact that the Trinity is full of the references to the Trinity. In fact, it is equally as clear in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Now, I agree with that third group. Uh, in David, in fact, you know, I, I was just shocked when I was doing some research of what some of the ancient pre-Christian um, Jews held to with regard to a Trinity, because I've never learned this uh, elsewhere. And I, I'm reading along in some of these, uh, these things, and they're speaking so clearly of there being one God, and yet God can speak to God. And uh, as they speak of three intelligences within what they called the Godhead. And uh, if you want to do your own research, um, uh, Encyclopedia Judaica, it's a Jewish encyclopedia, they're fiercely opposed to the doctrine of the Trinity. But there's an article in there that I can point you to where they admit that the early Christians got the doctrine of the Trinity from some ancient Jewish writings. They admit it. And uh, maybe at some point I can give you quotes, but this was just dragging. Last night I was thinking, oh, I've got to give some of these quotes in here, but it was going to just make the, the sermon too long. But in David Cooper's massive study, he says this, in our investigation thus far, we have seen that Moses and the prophets were Trinitarians. They believed in the three divine personalities who subsist in the one divine essence. 
This conclusion is inescapable for one who is willing to take the Holy Scriptures at their face value. Now, after reading his book, I have to agree he's not exaggerating. It is clear in the Old Testament. And the interesting thing that I found, as I've mentioned, that these um, ancient Jewish Targums, um, and there's other writings as well, but the Targums mention the Trinity, I think, ever so clearly. Now, the Targums were written, uh, they started to uh, come about when Israel was cast into exile in Babylon, and then the next generation didn't know any Hebrew. And so it had to be translated into Aramaic, and then they would make comments on that Aramaic, and that was eventually written down in about the second century uh, AD, but it represents way pre-Christian thinking. And in these Targums, they refer to the word of Yahweh, and this word of Yahweh seems to be the one who is interacting with creation and interacting with people. Uh, he is the one uh, who creates all things. He's the one who brings fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's the word of Yahweh who, who is, con you know, he's the one that's always these theophanies. It's spoken of as the angel of the Lord. So there's the word of the Lord, and then over a hundred times, these ancient Jews referred to uh, the Father in heaven, and then they speak of the Holy Spirit, and there's a couple of names that they give to the Holy Spirit as well. And so very clearly, uh, you can see uh, all of these called Yahweh in the Targums. You can see Yahweh speaking to Yahweh in the Targums. It, it's, just a, it's just an amazing thing um, uh, that uh, these things are being denied um, by modern scholarship. And so what I want to say is modern Judaism is nothing like the faith of ancient Israel. And I want to look at some of the scriptures that these Jewish writings appeal to. And we're going to start at Genesis chapter 1. Now, there are many more verses. There are literally hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that I think point so clearly uh, to a trinity, three persons. Now, sometimes only two persons are mentioned. Sometimes all three are mentioned. But let's take a quick survey. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here's a plurality in unity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the word Elohim is a plural noun. In the Hebrew, anytime you have an im on the end, it's a plural, okay? So it's a plural noun. In fact, this is exactly the same noun that's translated God in many places. Um, thou shalt have no other gods before me, as thou shalt have no other Elohim before me. And so it's a, it's a plural noun. But here, it can't be translated as God because the verb is singular. And so it's one being who creates. Why? Because there is a singular verb, and yet there's somehow a plurality within this Godhead. And the very next verse begins this differentiation. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so you've got God, and you've got the Spirit of God, and then in the next verse, you've got a revelational God speaking and creating. Now, these ancient Jews spoke of that as the word of Yahweh. Now, look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Now, some people say, well, maybe it was God and angels, but we're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. And he uses a plural there. Now, some Jews try to weasel out of that by saying, uh, well, it's the, it, it's the plural of majesty. Well, you would expect the plural of majesty to be used when God is interacting with the creation or with other humans. That's when his majesty needs to be honored, right? But when he's speaking to humans, 
you know, almost all the time he uses the singular, but when he is speaking to God, God is speaking to God, it is always the plural that is used, and that's the only time that the plural uh, seems to be used in terms of those pronouns. And so, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Take a look down at chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord, that's Yahweh, then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. One Yahweh, and yet more than something, I mean more than one something, has self-consciousness and can use words like we and us. Well, we call that personality, don't we? It's personality that has self-consciousness and can use terms like that. Look at Genesis 11, 6 through 8. And the Lord, that's Yahweh again, said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them. Now who is the us that scatters them? He says it's the Lord that scatters them. There's an us that scatters them, and there's a Lord, singular, that scatters them. It's a plurality and a unity. Can you see that there? Okay, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creators in the days of your youth. Look it up. It's in the plural. Um, Psalm 149, 2. Let Israel rejoice in his makers. Now, I'm not going to belabor that, but there are literally hundreds of passages that use the plural noun for God with a singular verb or use a singular noun for God and a plural verb or use plural adjectives in order to get across that there is a plurality, there's a many, but there's also a one. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. This psalm is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This Messiah is clearly called God. In fact, Hebrews 6 Remember, we, we quoted that. Uh, it says, to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. And so take a look at verse 6, Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Now, wait a minute. Isn't the person he's talking, who is talking to there, isn't he God? Well, he is. But he's saying to this God, the Lord, your God, is going to do something um, he says therefore your God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions and so God anoints God now isn't that exactly what happened at the baptism of Jesus oil in the Old Testament represented the Holy Spirit Who is to come? Isaiah 48, beginning at verse 12. It says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. That's a divine title. And by the way, New Testament applies that to Jesus, right? I am the first. I am the last. The Alpha, the Omega. So he says, I am he. I am the first. I am the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. So this is clearly God, because Jesus is the first and the last. It's God the Son who is being spoken of. Now, you can read the rest of verses 13 through 15, but now look at verse 16. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. Now, the it is referring to the beginning. So in any beginning to have been begun, <laughs> Jesus was already there. The pre-incarnate Son of God was already there. And, um, 
Look at this, uh, what this divine being says in the next phrase. And now the Lord God, that's Adonai Yahweh, and his spirit have sent me. Now there is the Trinity for all Jews to behold a divine being who created all things, who existed before time began, who was saying that the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. That is a Trinity. It is just as clear as any New Testament passage concerning the Trinity. Psalm 110 uh, the, uh, has Yahweh speaking to David's Lord. So there is God speaking to God, saying, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so we've seen a plurality in God. We've seen God speaking to God. We've seen the persons of the Godhead all being called Yahweh. But that in no way denies monotheism. Now I want to spend a little bit of time in that verse that we started with in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 because this is the classic. There's some other classic uh, verses as well that deal with monotheism. But this is the classic verse on monotheism. All of the Jews knew it. They had to memorize it. They had to recite it continually. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Now in light of everything that we have seen so far, this is a fascinating verse the name Yahweh is in the singular but the word for God is a plural construct and it could actually be translated our gods if it wasn't for the fact that it's Yahweh singular okay uh, and, uh, the, the context demands that it be a compound singular there's a clear-cut plurality but the name Yahweh is singular now in addition to that the word that's chosen for one is Echad Echad. The Hebrew word echad is defined in one of my Hebrew books this way. It says, while the fundamental idea is that of a compound unity or the oneness of different elements or integral parts, it came to be used to express one in the absolute sense as the numeral one. This fact being true, it becomes necessary to study the context wherever it occurs in order to ascertain which idea is conveyed in each particular case. And, of course, looking at how Moses used it, I think, is particularly significant. And the book goes through and it shows several, many examples where it's used as a compound unity. One of them is Genesis 1-5. And there was evening, there was morning, day one. Now, Dr. David Cooper says this. This statement brings together two contrasting ideas, light and darkness, into a compound unity, which idea is normally expressed by echad, unquote. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The author comments, In this passage one sees two individuals, man and woman, and yet God said that they constitute a unity, a unity made by joining two opposites into a real oneness. Now that's a very interesting passage because you've got two persons, Adam and Eve, who are said to be one flesh. Now they're not one in every sense, but they are one flesh. And so is an illustration uh, uh, he gives that. Now, interestingly, that Hebrew scholar believes that Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, used, uh, is using it in a compound sense in order to avoid the idea of polytheism. Uh, uh, Elohim is in the plural, but to avoid the idea of plural gods, Moses says that this Elohim is one Yahweh, he's one Lord, and he uses Echad to get that across. So even the strongest verse on monotheism gives very strong hints of a plurality within that Godhead. Uh, I've got an unbelieving Jewish commentary on Deuteronomy. It's a massive um, commentary. Here's his comment on this. 
He says, for all its familiarity, the precise meaning of the Shema is uncertain. Well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> it's uncertain because it's troubling. Uh, it's troubling to the, to, to the Jews. Uh, in fact, uh, I have an ancient uh, commentary by a Jewish rabbi that says this is speaking of a unity of intelligences, plural, within the Godhead. Prior to Maimonides, who lived in the 12th century, the Jews always used echad in connection with God. But after that, they used yachid, which is a radical uh, oneness, because they were trying to fight against uh, uh, Trinitarianism, and they were just so troubled by this use of a compound one. It embarrassed them. Now, to close off this sermon, let me affirm that there are literally hundreds of Old Testament passages which affirm the Trinity in clear and unambiguous language. And I believe every bit as clear as the New Testament. It is not a New Testament doctrine. And this is why Jesus held the people accountable for not believing Moses when he said he was the Son of God. In John 5, they pick up stones to stone him because he said that God was his Father. Now, they knew their Old Testaments. They knew the implications of that. And it goes on to say, making himself equal with God. Now, why would calling himself the Son of God make himself equal with God? It surely doesn't on a human level. Our sons are not equal to us because they are born after us. That's the, the Old Testament and the New Testament theology. The son is always lesser than the father. And so why would saying that you're the son of God and that you've proceeded from heaven, why would that make you equal with God? Well, those ancient Jews, they knew their theology. They knew that the father is called the, the eternal father. There never has been a time when he was not father, which means there never has been a time when he was not son, which means that the son has to be equal with God. They knew that. They, there, there was no way of getting around that. And so they knew the father, the word of the father, sometimes known as the son, and the spirit of the father. They knew these persons to be all equally God, equally Yahweh. And so Jesus does not say, oh, these poor blokes, all they have is the Old Testament. I guess I'm not going to be too hard on them. No, he's very hard on them. He says in John uh, uh, five, do not think that I came to accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you put your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. In John twelve forty one, the apostle John says that Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. Remember the passage in Isaiah six. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he goes on to talk about the angels giving Trinitarian worship. Holy, holy, holy. Why three holies? Because there are three persons in the Godhead, right? And um, he says, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, John goes on to quote the next verses that come right after that, that this being, this Yahweh is speaking and the glory that's there and john in that verse says these things isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him he says it was seeing jesus's glory that is an inescapable verse you read it in the context he is saying the glory that was in isaiah 6 was jesus's glory incredible passage <clears throat> and this is why um, Jesus says, and John says, the Jews should have known. And many of them did. That's why the Magi, they had no problem worshiping the baby Jesus because they knew, they knew he was more than just a baby. Um, that's why there was no controversy whatsoever amongst the apostles and amongst the disciples and the early church over the Trinity. 
over calling the Father God, the Son God, and the Spirit God. No controversy whatsoever. There's tons of controversy over circumcision and other things like that. But in the church, there was no controversy. It was only at later history when heretics came in and they began to subtly affirm certain things so they sounded orthodox but then question other things that the church began to say, you know, there's trouble here. We need to get together and redefine and, and try to figure out what's, what's happening. You know, this is what liberals always do. They affirm the scripture. Oh, yeah, we believe the scripture. And then they redefine the terms. And then when you kind of redefine and say, okay, we've got to bring in another word to clarify what the scripture says, like infallibility, for example, then the liberals came along and said, oh, yeah, we believe infallibility too. But they really define it. And so we come up with another word, inerrancy. And that's what happened at the Council of Nicaea. They were wrestling with this. These guys are affirming these terms of scripture, but they're not using it the way the scriptures do. How do we let people know that they are heretics? And so they clarified, they re-clarified, they, they wrote things together, and then they came up with a beautiful statement of the Trinity. And you know what they said? The church has always held to this doctrine. I did a little bit of research to say, has the church really always held to that? Because so many people think that the Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea. No, it was not invented. It was clarified, but it was not invented there. And so I look back, the Didache, which is just a tiny brief document that was written before Jerusalem fell, gives at least some hints toward the Trinity, and there are clear references to the Trinity in the first and the second and the third century uh, church fathers. And so this is a, a doctrine that the church has, uh, has always held to. Now in the next two or three weeks, I want to teach you some of the fabulous implications of the inter-Trinitarian relationship. Today was the foundation, but let's close just with a few applications. First application is you need to be wary of modern scholarship. Some people are embarrassed uh, to differ with any modern scholars, whether they're liberal scholars or evangelical scholars, and they just put too much, they've got a lust for academic respectability. Just forget that. Stick with the Bible, you know? Now, we need to get the information, you know, of scholarship that is out there, but don't be afraid to differ with the scholars if the scriptures clearly differ with the scholars. Here's what the scholars say. They say that the Trinity was not known by the early church. It was not until the Council of Nicaea that they really came up with that. We say no. They clarified. They did not invent. Second, we must treat modern errors on the Trinity just as seriously as Jesus did. Jesus obviously saw this as being a foundational doctrine to the Christian faith. We cannot cut people any slack on this. If you go to the bookstore uh, up here, Parables, you're going to see all kinds of heretical books on the Trinity. Uh, books by T.D. Jakes. He's just wildly popular in some circles, and he doesn't believe in the Trinity. And yet people want to embrace him and bring him in. Books like uh, authors like Kenneth Reeves and David Campbell. But Christ did not embrace those who denied it, and evangelicals must not. Modalism is a dishonor to Christ, and it is a dishonor to the Spirit, and you cannot honor the Father if you do not honor the Son and the Spirit. Okay? Do I hear an Amen. <laughs> okay, third, you should be nervous about all of this talk about a Judeo-Christian consensus. Uh, there are, if you mean by that, an Old Testament and a New Testament consensus. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, we agree. Yes, there is a consensus because we believe in one Bible, it's unified. But what they believe is that evangelicals today have a consensus with the Judaism of today. And I say, no way. In fact, most of Judaism doesn't even believe in God. Many of them are, most of them are atheists. But even the ones that do, 
there is no relationship. The God of Orthodox Judaism is utterly different than the God of ancient Israel. It is utterly different. And we ought not to be saying, like Bush or others, that uh, you know, we've got a, a consensus with them. They believe in the Talmud, not the Bible. And the Talmud is the compilation of the oral traditions of the Pharisees, which Christ rebuked in the most fierce language. He says, you make void the law of God with your man-made traditions. That is what characterizes modern Judaism. It's the Talmud. It is not, and it's what Christ rejected. And uh, in the same way, uh, the, uh, the same is true of the Trinity. They worship a different God, and Islam worships a different God. The God of the Old Testament was the Trinity. Fourth, I would urge you to begin, even though we've barely touched on it, I would urge you to begin to glory in the beauty of the community and the love and the service that goes on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to have a lot more to say upon that, but our marriages, our families need to reflect the Holy Trinity. Uh, Adam and Eve were made in God's image, and he wants us to image him. And so just begin to reflect as we've looked a little bit at the Trinity, how do we reflect what God is like? Fifth, if this sermon has blown you away as being far too difficult, <laughs> then I challenge you to start studying the doctrine of God. Uh, it ought to be so familiar to you, you can explain this to anybody who contradicts the Trinity. In past ages, what I have just taught would have been thought of as just the basics. Oh, get on with it, Phil. Let's dig deeper. This is just the basics. And I think it shows how shallow our modern Christianity is that even teachers today many times cannot recognize the simplest Trinitarian heresies that even children after the time of Athanasius were trained to recognize. We need to dig deeper. And then lastly, learn to take doctrine and worship with it, to glory in who God is. Jeremiah 9 verse 24 says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. God wants us to understand him. Doctrine is the only way we're going to be able to understand him, right? He wants us to understand him and to glory in him. So I would challenge you to start studying the doctrine of the Trinity. Some people say, you know, that systematic theology books are just reference books to put on your shelf if you happen to have a question. They were written to be read, right? Commentaries were written to be read. And I want our people to be a studying people, to know our God and to glory in him. Amen. Father God, Father God, we bless you. We glory in who you are. What an awesome, awesome God you are. There is none who is like you. The gods of the heathen are simply demons, Father. They are created creatures who have rebelled against you, and we recognize, O oh God, that you will have the glory. You will have the victory. You will triumph in history and in eternity. And Father, we submit ourselves to you, and we gladly worship you as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect in unity, one God. And Father, we listen to your admonition to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Father, blessed be your name forever and ever. Help us, Father, to understand you more and more, to dig into the glories of your being. And as we understand you more and more, to have our hearts warmed to worship. May you receive all of the honor and the praise and the glory with the thoughts, the meditations, the words, and the actions of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.